Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. So today is the final day of the series on what the Bible really says. And intentionally, I waited until the very end to hit the really difficult topic that nobody wants to talk about. And, and the question this morning is, what is sin? Is, is it a sin? I'm asking you all this question. Let's take a vote for a moment. Is it a sin to park your car in front of a fire hydrant? Yeah, I'm not going to name names, but somebody in the congregation may have done that this week whose face is getting very red. Is it a sin to text and drive? Somebody told me I was doing that. Is it a sin to use profanity? That is the question this morning of what is a sin? And 10 years ago, I was working for a university and for lunch, I would always bring these frozen burritos. They were just these store-brought, like these little chimichangas. I loved them. I still do love them. We have them in our freezer at home. And this is what I would eat for lunch every day. And for those of you that work in the office, you know the rules of the fridge and the freezer. You, You must put your name on it so that nobody else eats it. That's just the rule of the office. And so every day I would wrap it up in a bag. I would write my name on it. I would throw it in the freezer. But there was this one day where I forgot to bring my lunch and I was so hungry. And so I went to the freezer to see maybe I had left one in there and I opened it up and no, I didn't leave any in there. However, there was one in the door and I knew it wasn't mine, but it was the exact same one that I always eat. And I was staring at it and it was one of those moments where you just, you could start smelling it and then you could just taste it just staring at it. Before I knew it, the wrapper was off. It was in the microwave. It was on my plate. I had it and I was running back to my office as fast as I could and I ate it and it felt so good to eat it. At least my belly felt really good. And then two hours later, I was walking past the kitchen and I overheard some people talking of, where's my burrito? I had a burrito in here. I was saving it for today. Who ate my burrito? And in that moment, I felt so guilty. And, and the question is, was it a sin for me to eat that burrito? Especially since they did not follow the rules. They did not have their name on it. So who is to say that it wasn't mine? Was it a sin for me to eat that? I guess the answer depends on how we define sin. 1 John 5, 16 through 17. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. 
According to this passage, there seems to be two types of sin or two categories of sin, one that leads to death and one that does not lead to death. But what are they? Because John doesn't really tell us what they are in this passage. And to find that answer, we need to go to the words of of Jesus and some other New Testament writings. But before we can even understand what Jesus is talking about, we must back up to the Old Testament. We must back up to the perspective of the Old Testament in order to see what the Bible really says. And so this morning, my goal is for us to get a perspective of Old Testament and sin in the Old Testament, see what Jesus says, what the New Testament writers say, get our answer to the two types of sin, and then have an idea of what we could consider sin or not. And so when we back up all the way to the beginning, we go to the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, we see that God who is holy, God creates holy beings, angels and humans. And humans, these holy beings were created in his image, not at the same level as God, but holy nonetheless, because that is how God created humans to be. But then these humans, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And and their sin was that they tried to become like God. And the sin, after they committed that sin, their punishment was that they would, one, be removed from the garden, be removed from the ongoing presence of God, and two, they lost their holiness. And from that point on, all of humanity has been born through this sin, meaning without their original holiness and removed from the garden. But hope was not lost because God created a plan to restore that holiness. The books of Exodus and Leviticus provide us with these stories of of how God provided the Israelites, the, the Jewish community, God's chosen people with laws for them to follow. But each time that God provides these laws, he tells them something special. Before he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus and before he gives the laws in Leviticus, God tells them the purpose that they have these laws, which are so that the people can become holy. Be holy for I am holy. The purpose of these laws are so that humanity can enter back into that state of holiness which tells us that there is this gap that exists between God and humanity and God wants to restore that gap for us which is done through the law because the law can help us return to our holy state by showing us how we are sinning, but by helping us develop a conscience to know between right and wrong. Ultimately, all of these laws in the Old Testament are there to help the Israelites, to, to help them put God first above themselves, which if they do that will bring them back to the state of holiness. And so the law then in Old Testament, the law is tied to holiness, which is why it is so important for the Jews to follow the law. Anytime you do not follow the law, it means you have sinned. You are going contrary to God. You are making more distance between God and yourself. 
And so sin for the Jews is anything that goes against the written law of God. And so when you sinned or when you broke the law, there was a punishment that would follow. And so the Jews developed a system. They had, they had people and it was God ordained, but over time it developed because of their own desires. They eventually create these people, these Jewish leaders that were in charge of upholding the law. They were out there making sure that you were following the law. And if you didn't, they had a whole system for judging and ruling and providing punish, punishment. Think of it like our current federal and state laws that are all written down and we have police that are out there making sure that we are following the law. They are out there enforcing the laws anytime that we break them. This is Old Testament. However, Jesus takes it a bit far because the Jews took it too far. They became so focused on the law that they forgot the original purpose that the laws existed. They took it so far that they ended up focusing so much on the judgment and ruling of other people that without realizing it, they placed themselves at the same level of God because it is God alone who judges, God alone who provides the punishment. And now the Jews placed themselves at the same level of God, which was, was the beginning sin with Adam and Eve to begin with. They tried to become the same status as God, all because they forgot or missed the purpose of the law. And so Jesus came and he corrected all of that. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus gives a sermon to a really large crowd of people about the law and the intent behind the law to remind them, to, to refocus them. And in Matthew chapter 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he continues, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is taking the letter of the law and redefining it based on the intent or motives behind it. And he continues and he does the same thing with adultery and divorce, with taking oaths, with, with the punishment of an eye for an eye, with, with the concept of loving your neighbor. Each time he takes the exact wording of the law, but then he takes it deeper to the actual intent or the motive behind the law. So for Jesus, sin is more about the motive rather than the actual event. And this idea of the motives behind sin are what we see throughout the New Testament. James 4, 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you know something is good, 
and you choose not to do it, regardless of what the law says, you have now sinned according to James. In other words, it is the motive or the intent behind the action that matters. Now this is a big change for the Jewish people that had lived their entire life. All of their ancestors had always been focused on the letter of the law. The Jews did not understand what Jesus was saying. And eventually they kill Jesus because the punishment for Jesus was that he potentially broke the laws. But some of those Jews did believe Jesus. They did begin to follow Jesus. And then after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church begins to grow and include both the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles are those that are not born Jewish. However, all of the Jews in the church brought in all of their old baggage, their old perspective, their old understanding of the law. And it's not really their fault per se. Even us today, we come into church and we bring with us all of our old baggage, all of our old perceptions, all of our old teachings, whether or not they're right or wrong, we just bring those with us. And now we have this church filled with people that have all their own perspectives. And so Paul, the apostle Paul writes extensively about sin to specifically to the Jewish people of the Roman church. And one of the biggest issues in the Roman church for Paul was that it's the fighting that was going on between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and the fighting was all about the rules. It was all about what was considered sin and what was not, and who was better than the other. And so this morning, I want to walk through the book of Romans with you. And so since I'm going through the entire book of Romans, it will not be on the screen, but you can follow along with me. I'll tell you where I am at, and I'm going to walk through this rather quickly to see what Paul's message is about sin. He starts off in Romans chapter 1 by describing how all of their ancestors, all of their Jewish ancestors were filled with sin. Chapter 1, 29 through 32, this is Paul writing. They, their ancestors, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is a big hurt for the Jewish people. Paul is attacking their ancestors, his own ancestors. And his point were that the Jewish ancestors were not following the law of Moses. And then he begins to help them see that the law itself is not what dictates Sin. In chapter 2, he says that even the Gentiles who do not have the law, they still have a conscience and they know the difference between right and wrong. And then he furthers this in chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
Paul is saying that the law provides us with, with the knowledge to know what God deems is right and wrong, but the law does not save us, nor does it condemn us. Because in verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. And verse 24 tells us that the sin is forgiven through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Because chapter 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his main point here is that Paul is trying to get through these, his main point of all of these first five chapters of Romans is all summed up in this verse, 512. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. He is saying that the sin of, of Adam led to the corruption of all of humanity and that this sin of Adam is now passed down from generation to generation. And so the, the reason that Christ died on the cross was to save us, was to pay the price for our sins. And we read earlier that in 1 John that there are two types of sin or two categories of sin. And these first five chapters of Romans describe for us the first type of sin, the first category of sin, which we call original sin. This is the sin that leads to death. This is the sin that we are, are born with, where we are born with this, this natural desire to try and rule ourselves, for us to be like God, for us to be our own God. It's this natural desire for us to, to lean towards doing evil rather than doing good, which is often born out of a state of selfishness. And to this, according to Paul, there is only one cure for this type of sin, which is found in Jesus Christ. He came and paid the price for our original sin, this state of corruption that we are born with. And we receive this cure by believing in Jesus and surrendering to him. And when we do that, when we believe in Jesus and when we surrender our life to him, Paul says in 6, 6 through 7, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We have been set free from sin. However, this does not mean that we won't ever sin. This means that we have a way to avoid sin. We now have the power of Christ on our side, but we can still sin, which Paul continues to explain in Romans by reflecting on his own life. This is a man who has been saved and set free by Jesus Christ, but yet reflects in this way, chapter 7, 21 through 25. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. 
but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Can you relate to that? that? That you have given your life to Christ, but yet sin still seems to creep in. As Paul says, we are wretched. We are, we are prone to sin. We want to do what is good, but yet something is holding us back. Something keeps causing us to choose the wrong choice. In other words, Paul is saying that we have been saved from original sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the sin that we are all born with. That is the sin that causes us to continue to try and rule ourselves, to continue to, to try and make ourselves our own version of God in our life. However, there's still a problem of sin in our life, which is that we choose to sin because we still have free will. We are still selfish at times and we still choose wrong. And this, when we choose to do the wrong, this is what John is talking about as the sin that does not lead to death, which we call personal sin. Personal sin is, is, is when we voluntarily do something we shouldn't or avoid doing something that we should. It's about the intent behind what we do. Think of it this way. Sin is not so much about following the letter of the law, but more about following God himself, following God's will for us in every situation. In other words, we should be God conscious instead of rule conscious. We should be focusing on God more than we are focusing on the rule, the letter of the law. For example, Let's say that, that you go to a store and you want to buy something. So you walk up to the cash register and you pay with cash. Now I know that nobody pays with cash anymore, but just follow me for a moment. Let's say that you go to the store and you pay with cash, but the, the cashier makes a mistake in counting the change and doesn't give you all of your change back. It was a true, honest mistake. The cashier didn't realize that they made a mathematical calculation error. They just, they counted wrong and they gave you the wrong amount of change back. If sin is about the letter of the law, then this cashier just sinned because they basically stole your money. Even though it was an accident, they have sinned if sin is about the letter of the law. But if sin is more about the motives behind the law, then this accident, this honest mistake is not a sin because they did not do it on purpose. It was merely an accident. Or another example, pretend that, that, that we have this list 
of, of what is considered a sin and what is not considered a sin like the Old Testament Jewish community had. Imagine that we today have this big list of these are all the sins and these are all, are all not sins. We, we do these things, we avoid certain things. We have this list. And, and now imagine that you are faced with a decision and this decision that, that you are thinking about doing, you just don't feel right about it. There's something wrong about this. You just, you know that there's, it's morally wrong to do this thing, to make this choice. However, there is no law against it. If you do that thing that, that feels wrong to you, by the letter of the law, you are not sinning because there is no law that says that you can't do that. You know what I'm talking about, all those loopholes that, exa that exist, especially in the tax law here in the United States. So many loopholes. There are times where you know that you probably shouldn't be doing it, but yet the law allows it, so now we're okay. If sin is about the letter of the law, then you didn't break any command, you didn't break any law, therefore you didn't sin. But if sin is about the motive or the intent behind it, the moment you do the thing that you know you shouldn't do, you have now sinned, which is what James was trying to say. If you do the things that you know you ought not to do, then that has now become sin for you. Let me put all of this together. First John says that there are two types of sin. A sin that leads to death and a sin that does not. The sin that leads to death is, is the original sin and this is a result of the fall, a result of, of Adam and Eve. We are all born this way and it is our natural desire to choose evil, to rule ourselves. And if we are not saved by this, then we are doomed to death. But we have a cure that is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for this type of sin for our lives. And when we surrender ourselves to Jesus, that sin is taken away from us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to our old self. We have now been set free. The chains have been broken. But even though we have been broken, but even though we have been set free from this type of sin, we still have the potential to continue choosing to sin. We can choose to commit personal sins, which are those voluntary choices that we know we shouldn't make. And these are the sins that do not lead to death. But then the question, I can see it on your minds, the smart ones out there, you're saying, so if those sins don't lead to death, does that mean that we can just go on sinning if it doesn't lead to death? The answer to that is no, no, it doesn't. Because if we continue to sin, the more sin that we commit leads to us doing more sin and more sin. And before we know it, we are back to our old self, choosing us over God. And this is the moment that we decide to walk away from it all, to walk away from God, to walk away from, from the church, to give up on everything. Because that one sin that we chose to commit led us down this slippery slope. Eventually we are now so far gone, we don't even know what happened. But there is hope. Paul explains in chapter 8 that Christ has set us free from original sin, but also 
that the Holy Spirit continues to work in us to fully save us. In other words, we can get one step closer to that holy state that God had originally designed us to be. And this is possible because of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, guiding and leading us to this state of holiness. Again, this state of holiness is not the same as God's holiness. This is just back to our original design of how God intended us to be which is what Paul talks about in chapter 12 when he talks about the transformation and the renewal of our mind. After we offer ourselves and we begin this transformation, the next step for us is to choose love over evil, to choose to love one another. This is what he says. Chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share the Lord's people, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it is depends on you, live at peace with everyone. All of this is basically summarizing Jesus' sermon on the mount, which is about the motives of our hearts. It's not that we must follow a set of rules, but rather that we should love one another, that, that we should choose love instead of evil, that we should do things that are, are good for one another. And we choose love because chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding accept the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. His point is that if we love one another, then all of the laws are fulfilled. And again, the point of the law is to bring us back to this state of holiness, which means if we choose to love one another, we are then brought back into that state of holiness that we were originally designed for everything you do should be done from a state of love with pure intentions of the heart. And so earlier we asked the questions of, of is this considered a sin? Sin is not easily defined by the letter of the law. When we ask the questions is fill in the blank a sin, those are not easy to answer. 
Is it a sin to use profanity? Is it a sin to steal? Is it a sin for me to take a burrito from the fridge? Is it a sin for one of our congregation members to park in front of a fire hydrant? These are not easy things to answer because it's all about the motives or the intentions that are behind them. So if you look back just at this week, the last five days, six days, seven days, you choose. Think about the decisions that you have made and the reasons that you made those decisions. What sins did you commit this week? In what ways did you choose your own selfish desires instead of showing love to someone else? And do those sins lead to death? That depends on if you have been saved by Christ or not. And if you have, then it depends on your motives behind those decisions that you made. There's a difficult passage or verse from 1 John 3, 6. It should be on the screen. It says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. In him is Jesus. No one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning because no one who continues to sin has either seen him nor known him. This is hard to wrap our heads around. It's hard to imagine, but, 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 but yes, I did sin, but I know Jesus. I do live for him, but yet I, I chose this sin. Are you now saying that, that I'm not saved? Are you now saying that I don't live in Jesus? That is hard to wrap our heads around, but it is rather simple if we think about it. If you truly love Christ and you have surrendered your life and you have been saved and set free, and if the Holy Spirit is at work in you, then what John is saying here is that you won't want to sin. You won't continue in your patterns of your old self because we now live for Jesus. We now choose love over sin. The laws and rules were given to us for a very specific reason. Paul says in Romans 5, 20 through 21, he says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is saying that, that God gave the Israelites the law, not so that their sin would increase more, but so that they could understand their sin more, so that, that their knowledge of sin would be made known more. And the purpose of them increasing their knowledge of sin was, was to make the gift of Jesus increase was to make the gift that Jesus died on the cross so much more since we now have the blood of Christ, since now we know just how much the blood of Jesus actually covered because we know how great our sin was. In high school, I ran a red light. And this was back when, when in the city they, they had cameras on the lights. So I ran this red light. A Couple of weeks go by, my dad calls me into the office. I'm in high school. 
He tells me that he got the ticket in the mail of me running the red light. But then he tells me that he was able to use his cop connections to get the ticket waived, which that was a big deal for me. I was like, yeah, that, that's fantastic. Thank you for doing that. But then he shows me the ticket and shows that the price of said ticket was $400. Now that was a lot for me in high school, working a minimum wage job. I mean, it would be a lot of money today, $400 just for running a red light. So he shows that to me so that I could see the depth of my error so that his own greatness, that act of kindness that he showed me would be better, would be, I would feel better and I would thank him even more so that I knew just how much it was. And in the same way, God reveals the depth of our sin so that the sacrifice of Christ is even greater. That is what Paul is saying. God reveals the depth of our sin so that the sacrifice of Christ is even greater. So the question is, where do we go from here? First, we accept the cure for original sin. The cure is Jesus Christ. We surrender ourselves and believe in him and his blood dying 2,000 years ago covers us now today to set us free from the bondage of sin. Second, we seek the cure for personal sin. And that cure is found by surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit. When we become a Christian, there is a cleansing that takes place. We open our heart to Jesus and he comes in and he starts cleansing. He starts doing a new work in us. And it's an exciting time for some and it's a terrifying time for others. But he is in there. He starts scrubbing away. He starts cleaning. And, and then, then we, we talk about baptism and there's such a holy special moment for us to go through. However, for, for some reason, even though we are saved, even though God has, has been entered into our lives and he comes in there and he starts cleaning his way, he starts opening up all the doors that we have hidden in our heart, for some reason, we still keep one door closed. We hide all of our dirty little secrets in there. We lock the door and we hide the key. And we say, Jesus, you have room to come in everywhere you want to in this house, anywhere you want to in my life, just not this one little door. I'm not ready to let go of this just quite yet. For some reason, we hold on to that. We've been set free from this original sin. But yet this, this locked door that's hidden deep down inside of us causes us to choose to continue sinning when we know we don't want to. And so the cure for this original sin or this, this personal sin, this, this cure for the second thing is that we turn over that key, we unlock the door, we give it back to Jesus, we let the Holy Spirit come in and fully cleanse us. And when you do that, more chains are broken. You are set free from the bondage that is holding you back. And it is overwhelming in all the best ways possible. And so this morning... I want to give you that opportunity. We're going to close out the service with a song and a time of prayer. 
a time of, of worship. And this is a chance for you to accept that cure, to accept Jesus Christ who died for you to set you free from original sin. And if you still have that deep down inside, there's still that door that is locked, this is your chance to surrender that over to Christ, to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and do that cleansing work, that new revival that we see in us for us to begin to enter into that state of holiness that God desires for us to be in. And you can do that from your seats. You can stand and you can shout, you can sing along with the words, you can stay quiet and you can pray. Or if you want to physically offer yourselves as a sacrifice, surrender yourselves to Jesus, there are altars here on the side. There's nothing special about the altars. They're just pieces of wood that look really cool. But it's the act, it is the motive, the intent behind them that when we get up from our seat and we come down and we kneel down, we offer ourselves as a physical sacrifice. There is something special in that moment that happens and it is overwhelming in all the right ways. So in this moment, you have the opportunity to receive the cure from sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the gift of sending your son to die for us, to pay the price that we could never pay on our own. We thank you for not abandoning us when we mess up, but for being there. Because we know that nothing we do, nothing we say, nothing can separate us from your love. You are here with us. Father, I ask that you give us courage this morning to surrender to you, to unlock that hidden door and allow your spirit to come in and fill us. Father, give us courage in this moment to do that. I ask for you to reveal in us the areas that you want us to surrender, the areas that you want us to cleanse. Father, we are open to you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnaschurch or our website, rnaz.church.